0: Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34.
1: The current bout of renewed focus on gun violence in this country began with an horrific but relatively rare event a mass shooting in a school. Now, mass shootings overall, not just
0: in schools, accounted for just 1% of the more than 38,000 firearm deaths that took place in the United
1: States in 2016. And that's a reality that Parkland students, to their great credit, have gone out of their way to stress over and over again. The vast majority of lives lost
0: to guns happen away from national TV news. In September, for example, 16-year-old Zaire Kelly was walking home in Brentwood, a neighborhood in Northeast Washington, DC.
1: He was just steps from his front door when he was shot and killed only a few miles from the site of this weekend's historic march. Tremaine Lee spoke to Zaire's twin brother, Zion, who spoke at this
0: weekend's march about what he lost and the movement he is now trying to help build.
1: At this moment, please raise your hand, if you have been affected by gun violence, to honor the ones you have lost. Today, I raised my hand in honor of my twin brother, Zaire Kelly. On September 20th, a robber with a gun was lurking on my streets for hours. On my, way, on my walk home, he attempted to rob me, but I ran. He shot my brother in the head. what will be a...
2: My name is Naomi, and I'm 11 years old. <laughs> Me and my friend Carter led a walkout at our elementary school on the 14th. We walked up. We walked out for 18 minutes, adding a minute to honor Cortland Arrington, an African American girl who was the victim of gun violence in her school in Alabama after the Parkland shooting. I am here today to represent Cortland Arrington. I am here today to represent Hadia Pendleton. I, I am here today to represent Tiana Thompson, who at just 16 was shot dead in her home here in Washington, D.C. I am here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper.
3: I've had to make statements like this too many times. Communities like this have had to endure tragedies like this too many times. We don't have all the facts, but we do know that, once again, innocent people, were killed, in part because someone who wanted to inflict harm had no trouble getting their hands on a gun. Now is the time for mourning and for healing. But let's be clear, at some point, we as a country will have to reckon with the fact that this type of mass violence does not happen in other advanced countries. It doesn't happen in other places with this kind of frequency. And it is in our power to do something about it. I say that recognizing the politics in this town foreclose a lot of those avenues right now. But it would be wrong for us not to acknowledge it. And at some point, it's going to be important for the American people to come to grips with it and for us to be able to shift how we think about the issue of gun violence collectively.
0: Scott Charles is the trauma outreach coordinator for Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. He is the director of the gun violence prevention program called Cradle to Grave. He also has a master's degree in applied psychology. We are going to discuss gun violence in America, not only how we can prevent it, but some of the underlying factors that cause it. So welcome, Scott.
4: Thanks, Tina.
0: I wanted to ask you, since the, since the Parkland shooting, we have seen an increase in um, anti-NRA sentiment, and that's grown quite a bit, and I think that's probably a good thing, as the NRA generally represents gun manufacturers, even though they claim to be a civil rights organization. But it seems to me that their talking points have also increased in ridiculousness as a response. The first one is that arming arming teachers is
1: a solution. It only works where you have people very adept at using firearms, of which you have many. And it would be teachers and... Uh, Coaches, if the coach had a firearm in his locker when he ran at this guy, that coach was very brave, uh, saved a lot of lives, I suspect. But if he had a firearm, he wouldn't have had a run. He would have shot, and that would have been the end of it. And this would only be, obviously, for people that are very adept at handling a gun. And it would be, it's called concealed carry, where a teacher would have a concealed gun on them. They'd go for special training and they would uh, be there, and you would no longer have a gun-free zone. Gun-free zone to a maniac, because they're all cowards. A gun-free zone is let's go in and let's attack. What's your response
0: to that one?
4: Um, So arming teachers is silly, Um, (laughs) and I spend a lot of time – dealing with teachers, um, you know, part of my job is educating young people about gun violence, um, and I spent a lot of time bringing, uh, hosting classes of students. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and in fact, I was just talking with a group today and talking to a few teachers, and just these are teachers who actually um, work in neighborhoods that have some of the highest rates of gun violence, not only in the city, but in the nation. Um, right. And I said, you know, is that something you would do? And they just scoffed. Um, and they, said, you know, they don't know any teachers. They, they said there might be a couple of teachers, um, you know, at their school who would entertain the idea, but the vast majority of teachers have no desire to be armed because, one, it's just not what they signed up for. But, two, mm-hmm. none of them wants to be in a position to have to shoot one of their students. And to be right. honest, if you're a parent, um, the idea that you have somebody teaching your student who, you know, your child, who would be willing to shoot your child um, is frightening. Frightful.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I agree.
4: So, And, you know, that's um, a
0: salient point because they would have to to, uh, shoot the student if it was a student shooter that was approaching the school and shooting at their fellow classmates.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's the reality of it. And a lot of times the perpetrators have been students of the school's where they're doing the shooting Um, and the truth the other part of it is there's this um, you know this kind of movie driven fantasy that exists about how um, armed civilians are likely to stop you know gun you know gun perpetrators or perpetrators of gun violence and it rarely happens Um, and of course it happens um, but statistically mm-hmm. speaking, there's gun violence all day, every day. Um, yeah. I work at the busiest trauma center for gun violence um, in one of the deadliest big cities in America. And out of probably 6,000 gun victims that we've treated at our hospital in the 12 or 13 years that I've been there, I, can probably, I wouldn't need two hands to count the number of victims who were shot by lawful gun owners. Um, it rarely mm-hmm. happens. Um, and so, you know, the the chance that you have a teacher who's in the middle of a lesson on whatever um, to, teaching to the test um, is right. going to be um, prepared to respond to a mass shooting um, is, is just silly. it's just it's silly. Yeah. Um, and and that, suggests that it just suggests that those teachers, um, could easily take the place of like a SWAT team member. And we've seen how difficult right. it's been for actual trained police officers to respond to um, a shooting right. in, that situ- in, in that situation. So it's, it's just kind of silly. Yeah,
0: it is a silly argument, and I often think back uh, to the Reagan shooting where he was surrounded by how many Secret Service men when that went right. down? These were trained trained professionals that are supposed to be able to stop and prevent this sort of thing, and they were not able to. So the idea that a fourth-grade teacher would be able to react and and do the right thing in that situation is, I think, is a pretty crazy argument, too.
4: So we, we, we also know that it it's not really that these guns serve as a deterrent to shooters. I mean, there are a number of cases where mass shooters actually, or, you know, shooters targeted law enforcement agencies.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, we
4: had one here where shooters um, targeted a state police uh, barracks and attacked a place where he knew he could find state police officers um, and, and, you know, ambush them. So it's not like this is going to serve as a deterrent. And many of these shooters are suicidal to begin with. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. they anticipate dying. And if you don't shoot them, they go on to shoot themselves. So, you know, the deterrent idea is is silly as well.
0: Yeah. And you know what? You actually bring up another interesting point. I learned this from you. The number one uh, death associated with gun violence is suicide, and it's in white males
4: yeah so you know <clears throat> nearly two thirds of of um all gun deaths in America are suicides, and something around seventy eight percent of gun suicides are committed by white males. Nobody dies more often from guns than do white males in america mm-hmm. so
5: and um, um, people don't
0: I didn't know that and i I thought that was a very interesting argument because you often just think about the situations where you have mass shootings like whether it's a Parkland situation or the situation that was in Las Vegas.
6: And you can hear it there, sustained automatic gunfire at the concert. People were running for cover or crouching down to try to avoid being hit. Some eyewitnesses are saying the shooting came from an upper floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. This is not confirmed at the moment. Now, the incident took place around 10.30 p.m. per local time. Parts of the area were shut down. Armed police arrived at the scene of the attack. It was at the Route 91 Harvest Festival taking place just across the strip from the Mandalay Bay Hotel Casino
0: but those are the bigger headline stories on a daily basis you're bringing up something that occurs that should be dealt with as well it's this is a very high rate of suicide
4: right and so i'm not really sure why we're comforted by the idea that um when that's a certain cross-section of americans dies it's okay because it was suicide um yeah it's weird you, you know i'm the brother of somebody who committed suicide by gun um, mm. her death doesn't provide me any comfort, um, because it was a suicide. It still represents a gun death. And you could Absolutely. argue that you could argue that she could have used any other means to commit suicide. Um, but, um, you know, she, we find that people, uh, frequently use firearms and the chances of surviving a suicide attempt with a firearm, uh, are slim and none. Mm-hmm they're Yeah. Say rare. Yeah.
0: Very rare. So, all right. The second thing the NRA came up with after Parkland, which which this one I almost I can't say with a straight face, is so ridiculous, was the bulletproof blankets. Mhm. So now we're going to have four year olds, five year olds napping on bulletproof blankets that are supposed to double as some sort of protection.
4: Right. Because that's, 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 that's not terrifying. That's not terrifying to our children <laughs> to constantly right. be thinking about being shot. Yeah sad that that this we live in a, a society where we're like you know what let's not try to make it more difficult for people who are um, either you know who have criminal histories or who are mentally ill to get firearms let's let's put the burden on not dying on our children um on small mm-hmm. children let's arm them with bulletproof backpacks which by the way <laughs> won't do much to stop uh, you know an, the round from an ar-15 from penetrating right. them but it'll make us feel better. I mean, it's just, it's absurd that this is where we are.
0: It is absurd that this is where we are. You know, and then their all-time favorite is the one that guns are inanimate objects, so that because they're inanimate objects, they don't kill people, which is just completely asinine. I mean, we have laws that regulate, you know, car injury. It's like if you run somebody over, okay, no, the car didn't do it. The person driving the car did it in the same way that a person with a gun does it. So I'm not sure why they go to that place. It makes zero sense.
4: and it's really hard to keep up with the, the logic because, you know, sometimes yeah. you'll read a story about um, a gun owner whose inanimate object fell and then that inanimate object fired a round that killed right. a neighbor because the bullet went through the the wall. And then it's like, well, well, well you know, which, which is your argument? Um, and you exactly. often hear in those stories how the gun, quote, just went off. Um, and I'm amazed yeah. by how many times the gun – just goes off. And I'm a gun owner. I have, a, I have several guns, um, but I don't take issue with gun ownership at all. Um, the problem mm-hmm. that I have with it is really this um, wild kind of uh, fantastic idea that we have about how we're going to use those guns and how they make us safer. They simply don't. Um, and yeah. we, because of this, Um, you know, just because of the absurd way that we think about guns and what they represent to us, we don't take the precautions necessary to protect ourselves. And so um, this idea that we need to take our guns everywhere, Um, what you've Mm -hmm. done is you've increased the likelihood of actually having accidents more than you've increased the likelihood that you're going to stop a, a perpetrator. More you bring guns into the public forum the, you know the more like into public spaces the more likely it is that you're going to have these types of accidents and just you know I one of the one of the efforts that I do is I distribute free gun locks in neighborhoods that are oh, nice. in, in firearms and one of the things is that many people um, in the neighborhoods possess these guns illegally historically mm-hmm. the way you could go about getting a gun lock is you would go to a police department and say hey Um, I'd like a free gun lock. And the fear, of course, for somebody who's prohibited from owning a gun is that they're going to get, you know, that somebody's going to do a background check and then arrest them so they don't go to the police department. So Mm -hmm. I reached out to our local police department and said, would you be willing to provide me gun locks so that I could give them out to people in the neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Um, And they said, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And that's how it started. Um, And then since then, because of the demand, um, I've had to – You know raise money to support this effort on my own which is fine um but in the last two and a half years we've given away more than seven thousand gun locks um to those folks and what i hear from folks on um twitter and what have you are uh, is that it's um silly to lock up your gun because what good is your gun doing you if it's locked up and the truth is that i mean and it's crazy to think that right so you know, the yeah. truth is the number of bad guys that have been in my home in the last, you know, eighteen years is, um, zero. And yeah. the, tr- the, you know, zero hours by bad guys have been spent in my home. But <laughs> I can't count because I'm not good at math. The number of hours that my children have spent in my have house.
0: been present. That's right. Right,
4: and so I keep. I have a biometric gun safe. I have a gun safe that requires me to use my fingerprints, just like I open my phone iphone with my fingerprints. um it requires the use of my fingerprints to open up the gun safe um now most people can't Mm -hmm. most people in the neighborhoods that have high rates of gun violence find it difficult to afford that kind of thing so instead i give them an alternative which is this relatively inexpensive cable lock um and so they're not storing their guns in their nice stands unlocked. Um, but they have a gun lock on it and a key that's close by and they can take their gun lock off quickly. Um and so I say right. all that to say that the idea that one would argue with the sense you know, the, the the sensibility of using a gun lock is crazy to me. But that's part of the problem with this this mm-hmm. kind of gung ho gun culture.
0: Yeah, no, and I think the other side of that, too, and this is really important information, is oftentimes the guns that have been used in the school shootings have been taken from a parent's or a friend's parent's uh, house, and if those guns had been locked up in the way that you're describing now, they would not have had access to them. So I I think this is a very valid thing you're
5: discussing.
4: Well, and it's not just the mass shootings. I mean, certainly that's important. Um, but mass shootings are like a drop in the bucket. And, right, and that's one right, thing right. with which I agree with, um, you know, the gun rights folks is that um, we can spend a lot of attention debating whether or not Americans should have AR-15s. Um, the, the truth is um, you can take away all the AR-15s you want tomorrow. And it's not going to have any impact on the shootings in places like Baltimore and Philly and Chicago and New Orleans. Maybe mm-hmm. New Orleans, but not necessarily where you have cities with high rates of gun violence. It's just not. But there's no reason that Americans need it, especially in the way that we hand them out like candy. There's nobody yeah. saying, do you have military experience? Do you know how to operate this thing? What is your background? Right. How are you, what are your feelings about, you know, do you have grudges against society? What are, you know, we don't ask those questions, and so they end up in the hands of people who will use them in massacres. I will agree um, with my gun rights friends that um, if they're not going to use an AR-15, they'll find something else to use. Having said that, um, the injuries that are caused by an AR-15 are devastating. And I'm happy to debate that with anybody who wants to debate that because I've seen them up close. This is what I do for a living. Um, Mm -hmm. They're devastating and very difficult to treat. Um, So Mm -hmm. while I have an AR-15, while I don't feel um, that it would make a difference in the numbers of shootings that happen in America, um, I'm happy, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with us regulating them. But to go back to what the, the overall point was, which is the need to secure these weapons, we just had today, and you'll see it on my Twitter feed, um, the police arrested two young men this weekend. One was 18, one was 12. The 18-year-old mm-hmm. was found with a handgun. The 12-year-old was found with an AR-15. Um, oh. and, and so um, it sounds from the tweet that the police department sent out that shows an officer holding both of the weapons, that um, this was just the failure of the parents to secure these weapons. Um, and that's often how we end up with these weapons on the streets of Philadelphia. Again, mm-hmm. one of the deadliest big cities in America. It's because gun owners are not securing their weapons. We have probably right. somewhere around 40,000 active concealed carry permits in the city. Wow. And a lot that's of gun lot. owners, are, yeah, and a lot of gun owners are keeping their guns in their cars. Oh. This is a city that has a problem with crime. People are breaking into cars, stealing guns. Um, People are breaking into homes and stealing guns that are not secured with gun locks or anything, with gun safes. And so it makes it easy for those guns that are now in the hands of criminals to make their way to the hands of other criminals. Um, So Mm -hmm. if, if you're not interested in protecting those guns or protecting your children from those guns, it would seem that you would be interested in protecting society from the guns that you say are in the hands of responsible gun owners.
0: Well, that's exactly it. This, to me, is not responsible gun ownership. And I feel, you know, I mean, we've talked about this in the past. I feel very strongly that there should be liability attached to gun ownership. I think that's the only way you're going to see real change with the accountability of where your firearms end up. But I also know, and you're right on this, uh, that this is such a hard we don't have the underlying uh, database, the underlying structure to make that effective in the way that we do with like, for example, car registries or something that would be similar. So you know, so you uh, okay, this is interesting because I always believed that um, not allowing the sales of our uh, AR15s would actually change the dynamics, but you're, you're basically saying that's not the case. So let's talk a little bit about. Uh, Inner-city gun violence, or or Philadelphia or Chicago, the major cities that have sure. these problems. Now, I, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty certain that you told me that the amount of gun deaths in those cities are really mainly coming from handguns. Is that correct?
4: Right. So in Philadelphia, the nine-millimeter handgun is the most common gun to both be shot with and murdered with. Um, okay. So it's rare for it's rare for it, now again. It, it changes somewhat from city to city, but overall, as a, as a rule, uh, most people in America are being murdered with handguns. Um, mm. it's, and one reason that that might be is in Philadelphia in particular, um, police officers are constantly patrolling the neighborhoods where you have high rates of firearm violence, which would seem counterintuitive, but um, given the fact that you know you have high rates of yeah. gun violence and they're shooting each other when cops are present. Well, it's happening, and the, the, huh. truth of the, the truth of the matter is um, walking around with an AR-15 just <laughs> is, is not going to happen. You, you're going to get pinched before you have a chance to carry out what right, you to do it. Right, you can't really
0: conceal it. it. Okay. You can't,
4: they're very gotcha. hard to conceal, and so that's why they're using 9mm, and the second most common gun to be shot with in Philly is the 40 caliber handgun. So what
0: do we do? Um, what do we do? What are the answers to, to ways we use gun control effectively to stem the violence?
4: Well, it's, it's tough. I mean, it's such a, a difficult issue. So people will argue that criminals will always um, have access to guns. And, and the question is, you know, there's this idea that somebody somewhere, some criminal manufacturing company is <laughs> churning out criminal guns, like they're not yeah. somehow once legal guns they're <laughs> right. all they were all once legally <laughs> they owned were all guns. legal
0: at one time
5: that's
4: right right and then the that's question right. is well how do we how do we put pressure on that point right so um, how do they move from um being legal guns to being illegal guns well there are so many different ways and so what people tend to do is just say well let's throw up our hands up because we'll never address it well the truth is you can't until you try one that's one right. example is the one i just gave you so um I would like to know, you know, how did that gun go from being in my house or your house to being out on the street? Mm-hmm. Um, in Pennsylvania, for instance, nobody has ever um, been tried for report, fail, failing to report a lost or stolen gun.
0: Don't you sort of think that if we did enforce that, it would prevent a lot of these guns from going into the street? I mean, if you had to have uh, one of these locks that you're talking about, et cetera, or if you were liable if that gun was used in a crime and you didn't report it, don't you think that would help deter some of this? Uh, am I well, wrong? Well,
4: that's the, that's the liability part that you raised, right? So, if yeah. if I face consequences for um, failing to store my gun um, in a reasonable manner, um, then I would probably take greater make greater strides to you know, to secure my weapon.
5: Right, um, right. But,
4: but but, there is nobody who's saying, well, here's this registry. We traced this gun back. Can you explain how it ended up, how your gun here in Indiana ended up in Chicago? Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, why why did you not secure it more safely? Um, right now what happens in Pennsylvania, for instance, is when the gun, mm-hmm. in the rare instances when the guns are traced back to individual individuals, the individual can simply say, oh, you know what, I forgot to tell you, that somebody, you know, broke into my house and <laughs> stole it from the closet. Yeah. I, didn't even, I didn't even know that it was gone. Sorry. Wow. Um, if right. we held those people responsible and said, well, you had an obligation to secure that gun so that it didn't find yeah. its way out on the street. But we don't, right. we don't, do, we don't do that. Well, and I spent a lot of money um, by having a handyman come into my house and mount my safe to a floor and to a wall so that if you wanted to take it out, you were going to have to, you know, you're to work your ass off trying to get your ass that off. Gun safe out of my house. Um, and I wish everybody would take that, you know, put that energy um, into it. Um, but but right. we don't. Um, and so if we require people one to secure their their weapons and two um, report lost or stolen guns, um, you would see less, fewer guns out there on the street. Um, but we don't. And so long as that's the case, then, you know, we're we're always going to be fighting this uphill battle. And then, you know, the other part of it that's related to that is straw purchasing. So, um, you know, in Philly, you can, um, go in, you know, if I have a criminal record, I can go in with a friend who doesn't have a criminal record. And as long as I have the cash, I can say, you know, I want this gun, this gun, this gun. Um, you know, I wouldn't be so obvious about it, but I let my friend know these are the guns that I want. My friend could then turn around and, get, and
5: hand me those guns mm-hmm. when we get
4: to the parking lot, um, and I'll pay right. for his time and his effort. When those guns get ultimately get traced back to him, we're right back where we started. Where he wasn't required to report those as lost or stolen, he could simply say, "Oh yeah, you know, somebody broke into my house and and took those guns. I just never got around to reporting it." Um, and there there's another uh, avenue by which guns find their way um, out on out into the uh, communities. Mm-hmm. And then you know there are just a number of ways. So you know there was a a high ranking officer in Chicago who was re- recently murdered by a felon um, in Chicago. And when they ultimately traced that gun, I think they traced it back to, like, Wisconsin, if I could be oh, wrong. But I, think, I feel like it wow. either started in Wisconsin or that was where it was before it ended up in Chicago. Um, but it was, you know, it was sold kind of in some real bootleg kind of ways, one of which was on the yeah. Internet where you're not required to do background checks. Um, that's right. And you know that's an, another thing. And so um, there are a number of ways, but we we haven't taken on any of these ways because you have no. um, the NRA and you have others who will simply say it's an infringement on their rights. When to me, um, you know, this they've really bitten themselves um, in the ass, or is a more appropriate euphemism, be they shot themselves in the foot because what they've yeah. done now is they've been so opposed the to some real basic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean some real basic things that they could have done. That as reasonable gun owners, I don't see why you'd have a problem with it. You can, they're gonna, you know, if we give an inch, they're gonna take a mile. Well, the truth is, you were unwilling yeah. to give an inch, and now look what's happening. Which is why have a we will take yeah. five
0: miles. Yeah,
4: right. Exactly. And you have a movement that it has mounted as a result of Parkland, and the reason why you see the NRA going silent. Um, on the on the Twitters right now is because they're not quite sure how to respond to this. They didn't expect this, so um, they they're accustomed to you know when when um, Sandy Hook happened and they slaughtered all those small children. It allowed the NRA to, to feel you know to get too big for their britches, and they thought, well, hell, if you can slaughter little kids in their elementary mm-hmm. school, and we can and we keep them from passing gun legislation. Well, nothing is going to affect yeah. us. Well, they didn't realize. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, and ne- but neither did I. I mean, neither did anyone realize that if you slaughtered some high school kids, um, <laughs> that it was high school kids. It wasn't that it was um, it was suburban kids because we've seen suburban kids shot to, in their schools mm, going back yeah. going back to. Um, you know, going back to Denver, going back to Col- Columbine in Colorado. Yeah, um, that's happened before. The difference is how this group of kids happened to respond. It, you you mess with, and right. they said it. You mess with the wrong. You mess
0: with the wrong kid. group of kids.
6: Six minutes and about twenty seconds. In a little over six minutes, 17 of our friends were taken from us, 15 were injured, and everyone, absolutely everyone, in the Douglas community was forever altered. Everyone who was there understands. Everyone who has been touched by the cold grip of gun violence understands. For us, long, tearful, chaotic hours in the scorching afternoon sun were spent not knowing. No one understood the extent of what had happened. No one could believe that there were bodies in that building waiting to be identified for over a day. No one knew that the people who were missing had stopped breathing long before any of us had even known that a code red had been called. No one could comprehend the devastating aftermath or how far this would reach or where this would go. For those who still can't comprehend because they refused to, I'll tell you where it went right into the ground six feet deep. Six minutes and 20 seconds with an AR-15 and my friend Carmen would never complain to me about piano practice. Aaron Feist would never call Kira Miss Sunshine. Alex Schachter would never walk into school with his brother Ryan. Scott Beagle would never joke around with Cameron at camp. Helena Ramsey would never hang out after school with Max. Gina Montalto would never wave to her friend Liam at lunch. Joaquin Oliver would never play basketball with Sam or Dylan. Elena Petty would never. Carol Lugren would never. Chris Hickson would never. Luke Hoyer would never. Marquin Duque Aguiano would never. Peter Wang would never. Alyssa Alhadaf would never. Jamie Guttenberg would never. Meadow Pollock would never.
5: I mean, these are you
0: activist have,
4: kids, you know? Right. So it was a perfect storm. So you have kids who are, um, you know, relatively affluent, um, racially diverse, you know, racially mm-hmm. diverse, racially ambiguous, uh, sexually ambiguous in some cases. Um, they are <laughs> they are America's kids right now. I mean, this is today's kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they just, they had enough affluence and privilege to have a sense of of agency to say we don't have to take this. Now we'd be yeah. remiss if we didn't acknowledge the fact that there were a lot of Black kids um, in Philly, in particular, in in Chicago, certainly, um, definitely in Baltimore, who've been standing up to the system and demanding change. And kudos to them for acknowledging that they weren't the first kids demanding change. They they embrace the kids in Chicago, in D.C., and what have you. So kudos to them. Right. Um. But but what was important is that the way that America looked at those kids and said, well, hey, we should probably listen to them. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why they mess with the the wrong kids. You
0: know, you even had – we recently had a retired SCOTUS judge, uh, John Paul Stevens, who came out after this whole Parkland thing started taking up steam. He actually came out and penned an op-ed in which he argues that we should repeal the Second Amendment.
2: The last area that that I want to ask you about is what this country should do about guns. You would change the wording of the Second Amendment to the Constitution to say, the right of people to bear arms to own a gun should apply only when serving in the militia. Is it your ultimate hope that there would be no right to own a gun for self-defense?
1: Well, uh, uh, it would be
5: my ultimate hope that legislatures would decide the issues and not be hampered by constitutional restrictions because clearly legislators are in a much better position than judges are to decide what should be permissible in different contexts. And the effect of the Second Amendment as it's now construed is to make federal judges the final arbiters of gun policy, which is quite, quite wrong, I think, and quite contrary to what uh, uh, the framers intended when, when they drafted the Second Amendment to protect states from the danger that a strong federal uh, uh, armed force would able be able to uh, deprive the states of their own militias.
0: If you read through the piece and you um, parse through his logic, it's actually not a bad argument. What he's basically saying is under the Warren Burger Court, there was a clear belief that the Second Amendment had limited scope, meaning that it didn't necessarily apply in the way that it did post the Heller decision, where it's an individual right.
1: Holding that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to possess firearms, and that the city's total ban on handguns, as well as its requirement that firearms in the home be kept non-functional, even when necessary for self-defense, violated this right. The Court of Appeals directed the district court to enter summary judgment for a respondent. In an opinion filed with the clerk today, we affirm the judgment of the District of Columbia Circuit. We hold that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to have and use arms for self-defense in the home and that the district's handgun ban, as well as its requirement that firearms in the home be rendered inoperative, violates that right.
0: And you're right. basically arguing that the NRA has has taken that decision and used it to propagandize and weaponize and do all of these things and has turned it into this whole other monster. And at this point, he said, you know, these kids, we as American population should be demanding legislation to overturn and repeal the Second Amendment.
4: Well, I think it's a really interesting point, but I think I'm right where you are, where I don't know that it's going to require yeah. us require us to repeal the Second Amendment, but I think that what it does is it's going to ultimately force folks, and I think that this is what the NRA and other um, gun rights folks are um, waiting to see, is like, well, when is this thing going to die down? Because this momentum that, was, that came out of Parkland didn't, doesn't seem to be waning. Um, and that's right. why I say that they don't know what, they're not sure what to make of it.
2: And I think mm.
4: that um, it allows us to say, listen, do, are we going to have to repeal this or not? Because it feels like this is what you're forcing folks to say. And I think that for the yeah, first time, yeah. the gun rights folks are like, damn, you're seeing legislation yeah, being passed in places like, to
0: say this.
5: Yeah.
4: right, and, and you're seeing legislation being passed in places where you didn't see it being passed before, like Florida. If Florida right. is, is giving it's up done. ground,
0: yeah, yeah,
4: then, you know, what what the, is, what the hell is next? And you so, know, and the
0: tragedy behind that is what you were saying earlier. if they had come to the table years ago instead of pushing, pushing, pushing and for reasons I cannot fucking understand it I mean there's yeah. nothing wrong with sensible gun control measures if you are a responsible gun owner. so why on earth did things get so out of control?
4: right and but I mean, I think that if things became so partisan um, and that even the most kind of reasonable people who had been reasonable gun owners just thought I have to be in one camp or I have to be in the other Um, Mm -hmm. and I think both sides are are guilty of of making these kind of extreme positions or taking these extreme positions Um, and as a result there was very little common ground left but this is where we are where you're talking you have a former SCOTUS saying well we're we should repeal the Second Amendment and I as a a gun owner who is for um, you know, placing limits on, on gun ownership um, and I'm pro gun control. E- even I'm like, damn, mm-hmm. I don't did, do we have to repeal this? You know, Second limit? maybe, right. but, but right. I think that what I would like to see happening happen is having both sides come somewhere to the center and to the middle and say, yeah, right, where, where can we find compromise? Because um, right. this is what it's, this is what it seems to be coming to. You have people who are saying things like, um, you know, we're you know I saw some so-called patriots saying, you know, well we're we're willing to you know don't poke the bear. We're willing to lose our lives and all that. I'm like, it really is this <laughs> yes, really right. what you're gonna do? First of all, you <laughs> sound insane, and somebody should go get exactly. your gun. Um, exactly. Where they call
0: amusexuals or something?
4: Right, <laughs> amosexuals. I just feel like why don't we yeah. just have a conversation about what makes sense? Like, one, why are not we all on the same page about protecting kids and keeping kids from Shooting themselves or other small kids by right. mandating right. um, safe storage. Why? Why? Could, why aren't we all on that same page? Why aren't we all? Yeah. On why the same aren't page we? It, I
0: don't understand it. Yeah.
4: Right. W- it where makes it comes no to. Sense. Yeah, domestic abuse abusers. So, are right. you really going to take the position that you think the guy who beat his wife or his companion or partner should
5: have a gun? Um, yeah. Should
4: have a gun. Like, how is that defensible? But you know, I think that there's some common ground, and I think if we start moving in that direction, uh, where we have these conversations, we can make some effective changes, and then let's see where we go from there. But we both have to be Mm -hmm. willing to move off of our perches in order to get there.
0: This John Paul Stevens saying that really did move the conversation into that area. Maybe him pushing it, slaying that sacred cow, I think really sort of caused um, an argument and a conversation to be had. You know, this past week where you have the argument with Killer Mike and and um, Joyanne Reed, you know, I I was. That, that Killer Mike would partner with the NRA on anything because I think the NRA is a horrible horrible organization. I don't think they're a civil rights organization even though they claim to be. They've often sided with white supremacists. But I'm on you know,
3: top I'm of a real America okay, okay, no, with working hard playing hard white motherfucking shit kickers who are independent and, and they get up white. in the morning and go show me one. Show me one. Blacks can
4: fix the black problem tonight if
1: they just admit that I can do. Hey, Obama, you might want to suck on Punk. You don't get that? Obama, he's a piece
2: of
4: shit and I told to suck it, my Mickey, what you here for? Trey Bon who
1: I believe, uh what's the word I'm supposed to use here? Um uh, so they say
4: is a dope smoker allegedly, a dope
3: smoking gangster wannabe.
1: Those big uneducated greasy black
3: mongrels on there they call themselves rap artists i listen to james brown and wilson bickett and sam and dave You with me yeah no. those are niggers I I have been known to chew on a Cuban, That's a cigar. I wouldn't chew on a Cuban, they haven't figured out personal hygiene yet. But I do chew on a cigar
4: once in a while when I shoot my machine gun around the campfire. There are black mobs across America that are guilty of the worst racism since the Klan.
3: What's a feminist? Some uh, fat pig who doesn't get it? Often enough?
2: I said, hey Hillary, you might want to ride one of these into the sunset, you worthless bitch!
1: Into that battlefield and chopped their heads off in November. Am I any questions?
0: But you know, I did I did watch the video because I wanted to hear the whole 42 minutes of
1: what society, you know. right? In places like South Carolina, those irony of South Carolina, those black men went in a church to vote. The Klan came to make sure that vote couldn't happen. Yep. Black women surrounded that church with rifles and defended those men. Black women need to understand that as a unit, we have done more with a gun to protect our rights and freedoms than we are accredited for. Ida B. Wells, one of the most famous scholars and educators that our culture has ever produced, right, F- Chicagoing, right, Ida B. Wells housing projects, Ida B. Wells said every black home should have a Winchester rifle. Well, what's the significance of a Winchester rifle? It's a repeating rifle. It is essentially the AR-15 of its day. She didn't say some black homes. She didn't say just black homes with black fathers. She didn't say single. She said all black homes should have a Winchester rifle. So it always amazes me when we side politically with things that are not advantageous for us. If you're only 54 years out of apartheid, no other group of people, no other group of people would voluntarily disarm.
0: if you've been in an environment where where you know we have a history of lynching, we have a history of violence that's been directed at our minority populations, I understand why they would want to have a gun in the house. I get it
4: right, you know, and, you know as I, as you know one of the things I often point out is that we have guns in the black community, and i and any time that I hear the the folks from the NRA suggesting that they've done more to um protect our rights it's it's laughable um, it is
0: laughable yeah
4: because if you look at the history of the the nra i mean they weren't necessarily opposed to um gun control back when the, the panthers marched on the you know sacramento state capitol um and you know this one of the selling points of the NRA is this idea that those people over there, meaning the inner cities, and a member of the NRA points out to me that there's all this gun violence in Chicago. Our gun violence in Chicago are going to get on a bus and travel to his part, his suburb, yeah. to commit acts of violence against him, <laughs> um, which is yeah, it's, it's 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 silly. Um, so yeah. we, have, we have guns. Um, in the black community. Um, I live in a black community that's 95% African-American. We, Everybody I know has a gun. Um, older wow. people, younger people, okay. um, more affluent people, less affluent people. Everybody has a gun. Um, unfortunately, those guns have not made us safer. And the guns that are being that's purchased... The, that's go,
0: the salient point right. right there. Yeah.
4: And so the um, the guns that are... Um, that originate in the suburbs often find their way to the inner city through a number of means. And we talked about some of them. One of the things that Mm -hmm. we're having in Philadelphia right now is this um, surge in opioid um, overdoses and and the opioid market is where a lot of the gun violence has shifted. Um, And so in the 22nd district, which had, you know, it's historically been an African-American community, it had had the highest rate of gun violence. Well, that gun Mm. violence has shifted over into the 25th district, which historically has been a Hispanic community. Um, And it's where you now have a lot of um, opioid dealing over there. Um, And so a lot of the violence that you're seeing perpetrated um, is – related to drugs we don't have gangs but we do certainly have groups of individuals who are interested in um, their corners and a lot of times Mm -hmm. they use guns to settle scores what you'll hear Mm -hmm. from cops what you'll hear from cops is a lot of those guns now um, are coming into the neighborhoods from outside of the neighborhoods because you have people who are from the suburbs who got addicted to opioids got addicted to heroin um, or fentanyl um, and they'll sell those guns or trade those guns for drugs, and now you have more guns mm. coming into the neighborhood. Um, so it's, it's complicated about how guns yeah. end up in our communities. The problem is that people equate being black with being poor. Um, the people who are, in fact, shooting one another um, are suffering tremendous amounts of disadvantage, and there are a number of factors yeah. that contribute to the violence. Um, one is a yeah. sense of hopelessness. Another is just um, if they are hustling, if they are trying to feed their families, or if they are trying to make their you know, make ends meet, sometimes guns and gun violence is an occupational hazard. Um and mm-hmm. so it, it's a complicated it's a very complicated thing. And this idea that we need to encourage black folks to own more guns or that somehow um they're protecting us, they're not. I mean, in the case of Philando Castillo, who was a licensed right. gun owner, um that didn't protect him and we have you know and and let me and I, and this is really important to say cuz I never really say it enough on social media and maybe I should be better about it um, i don't have an i don't have an anti police view do i think we have a problem with policing in african americans absolutely you can't look at the data yeah. and not recognize that there are some problematic stats but the one thing that i wanted to say Um, that is key is in places like Philly, and Philly in particular, um, one of the reasons that you won't hear me just beating up wholesale on cops is that in Philly, the most common way for a gun victim to be transported to a hospital is by police car. Um, Mm. And what that means is that you have a cop who um, is not only allowed to transport a gun victim, but is encouraged to transport a gun victim. And what he or she will do is pick up a bleeding uh, gun victim um, and throw them in the back of their police car um, and drive them Race to the hospital. Reck- recklessly through the neighborhood <sighs> to get them to our hospital. And when they come to the hospital, you can smell the brakes burning and sometimes they hit the, the berm or the barrier that's in the front um by the er um, because they're driving so fast and their adrenaline is pumping and then they're helping drag the gun victim out of the car to try to save them in philadelphia Mm -hmm. we save 80 percent of gun victims um and that's an astounding number yeah eight out of ten times somebody gets shot in philly they survive a lot of that is attributable to the fact that cops scoop and run them so i said that Mm -hmm. um but
0: no, and I, Scott, I think you're right on that. I think that I think the clear point is this. We on the left, we want we want a police force that we can trust. We want good cops. What we don't want is cops who commit murder. And if they do commit murder, we want them tried, arrested, and prosecuted. And I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive.
4: No. And, and so so I just wanted to say that. But to also say that that doesn't mean that there isn't a fear of um, the young black men who fit the profile of perpetrator, because when young black men, um, when gun homicide is the leading cause of death for young black men, um, in in fact, when young black men in Philadelphia die, who were between the ages of 15 and 24, 60% Mm -hmm. of the time, 60% of the time, the cause of death is gun homicide. 60%. That's an astounding figure. It's not cancer. It's not car accidents. It's not house fires. Wow. And more often than not, the perpetrator was another young black man. So when cops encounter them, um, even if that kid is completely innocent, that cop is probably thinking, well, the perpetrator of these gun crimes um, are young black men, and so now I have a young black man here. If he reaches in a way that makes me uncomfortable, um, and who knows what this officer's experience might have been. It may not have been great in the past. He may not be the most open-minded cop. I mean, who knows? They're Americans raised in a society that has tried to convince yeah. us for generations that young black men are scary. Yeah. And now you have a kid who may be completely innocent, but he reaches into his shirt for a license to prove that he's a licensed gunner. Who knows? Now you got this yeah. cop who who shoots him um, wow, and yeah. this kid may have a gun. He may not have a gun. Um, he may be completely innocent. He may not be. But the cop is shooting this kid. And you have to now, the burden is on you to explain to me how guns somehow made that kid safer. Because if he had one, he, the officer can say, he well, I, he was actually reaching for a gun. If he did not have one, this is a cop who was raised in a society that has convinced that all young black men are, are scary. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so,
0: so your point, I would say, to the killer Mark, killer Mike argument, is basically that you know, even though having these guns fr- come from this place, they really haven't done anything to make us safer. No, nah. they, they've
4: hmm. absolutely not made us safer. Um, and I don't see safer from whom exactly. Um, are we using uh, them to yeah. to shoot cops? Because if you say that we're using them to shoot cops, then that. Justifies the actions that they've taken. Um, you know, if you mm-hmm. feel that cops are, are shooting um, too many black folks, which I think that they're shooting too many unarmed black folks. Um, you know, then it justifies that because they are they are okay. shooting them, but they're not. They're not because we are saying is that no, we're not shooting. For the most part, we're not shooting cops. Um, so we're not doing that to defend ourselves, and we're just not doing that in a way. That is a threat to to cops. Um, the the greatest threat to cops is going to a house where there's a domestic call. That's the that's the greatest threat that. Oh yeah, to cops. yeah. But in the street, that's not what's happening. Um, and this, I the the fact that we all have guns has not made us safer. Um, and so you know this is this is the argument, the problem that I have with with Killer Mike, um, you know, being on the NRA is that that's a platform that has tried to convince its members that we're dangerous. And then to go that's on right. there and say, like, to help kind of, you know, give them credibility by saying, oh, well, this is a, you know, this is a great organization that has protected our rights when they've done just the opposite um, yeah. is silly. Is and, and, you know, I was glad to hear um, that he went on the um, National Association of African American Guns, um, gun, or the National African-American Gun Association, um, because that that is a group that does, in fact, promote, um, you know, black gun ownership without trying to demonize um, Mm African-Americans.
0: There are groups of folks that would self-identify with a lot of the racism you see coming out of the Trump administration. So it seemed like a very odd choice of venues to have this conversation and I was a little bit puzzled by that but at the same time I I could understand some of the things that he was saying I just wish he had said them somewhere else
4: and the truth is we 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 get it we know what they're about which is why you don't see you know this idea that guns protect them from crime it's funny because I don't recall really seeing the open carry folks um coming through the neighborhoods you know they're not coming through the hood where you would find crime you know because they're talking about all the crime that's happening well why aren't they open carrying through chicago if they if they really want to reduce crime (laughs) well the reason is that they're afraid they're going to get their guns and they're afraid they're going to get their guns stolen from them well then if they're afraid they're going to get their guns stolen from them aren't the guns supposed to protect them i mean the last time that i recall um there was the open carry Texas was talking about taking their guns through the streets of, of, um, the fifth ward in Houston. And just the, the community members in the fifth ward were like, the hell you are. And, and yeah. basically said, see what happens. And they stood down and then they, yeah. they kind of snuck. I think they <laughs> kind of snuck in like months later for a like, took a photo in front of a the sign off. or something like that. But yeah, but they weren't going to march through there not without some yeah. some problems. No, no they like to
0: open carry to the suburban Starbucks.
4: You know? Right, exactly, <laughs> because they're not worried about the sub... – they go to places where there is not crime. Where um, yeah, there's no guns and the...
0: crime, exactly.
4: Yeah, they're not going to march through the neighborhoods where you have high rates of, of crime, and they're not going to hang out there for long periods of time um, because they will, in fact, get their guns taken from them.
0: We had a, a shooting here in Los Angeles, where Charlie back, who is the police chief, even said the guy, the cop should be prosecuted, that he was guilty of murder. And our DA did not file charges. There was no indictment. So, so it's
4: interesting. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm originally from Sacramento, California and it's, Oh, it's we've got a big
5: problem up there.
4: Right. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, with that case. You have an African American police chief and, and, you know, I was listening to Cornell West um, you know, argue yeah. that this is this is uh, an opportunity, and maybe that this he has faith, and and the police chief, whom I don't um, know much about. My family, uh, my aunt and uncle own the uh, African American newspaper in Sacramento, um, and so it'll be interesting to see um, what comes of this, and if there is opportunity mm-hmm. for groups to come together. And it's complicated, you know. Again, one of the problems with attacking cops, and I know this sounds like. I came on here. I'm like defending cop. That's not um, what my position is. I just think no. I mean, it's not. And it's not that I'm like like I said. I started by saying I'm not anti cop, and I'm, uh, and now I no. I, I'm no, like, I totally, like totally a, understand. But but the the thing is, I'm trying to offer a perspective um, right. and offer some nuance because it is a it's a it's a difficult it's a thing because, Yeah. Well, the, well because if you don't see it every day for what it is it's easy to kind of paint things with a wide brush when you live in Philly, a city that is arguably a chocolate city, and you recognize how many officers on the police force are African-American. Um, and you have conversations with black cops who are like, man, you know, I'm, I'm you know, going to these uh, black lives matter marches. And I have these, you know, Caucasian kids from the suburbs with dreadlocks yelling at me and calling me racist and that I don't understand <laughs> They're like, what? I yeah. grew up in West Philly. What are you talking about? Um, and so yeah. it's complicated. And one of the reasons I suspect that we haven't had a lot of high-profile shootings, given how much interaction cops have with the community, is because so many of the cops are from the community. Does that mean that right. there aren't right. cops that are like abusive? Nah. Does it mean that we won't have shootings? No, of course not. Um, but what you but it does make a difference. Yeah, when you look at cities where you have like a first and where the cops all live outside of the county,
0: most of them are white,
4: and then they come into an all black community. Well, you just have, they just have no regard for the people there. Um, It's no wonder that thing was, that thing was waiting to happen. Um, And Philly you just have, you have a lot, you know, let me give you a perfect example. So you have a case of, of um, Robert Wilson III, um, who's a police, I think posthumously he was named a a police sergeant. I could be wrong. He might've been a police sergeant before then. He on a Mm -hmm. snowy, snowy day, he goes into a GameStop to buy his son a video game. Um, And while Mm -hmm. he's in there, he's, um, he is, uh, the GameStop is robbed. So the two men who go in there who were intending to rob it, have no idea that there's a cop in there shopping for mm. his son, right? And who's okay. on duty. He's just taking a break. A gunfight ensues in the middle of this GameStop and officer Wilson, um, is shot
3: to death. We we're in this violent encounter. Officer Wilson was shot multiple times in the body and once in the head. That is the shot that ultimately killed him. The two suspects attempted to leave the store. However, was confronted by Officer Wilson's partner, Officer Stevenson. During this second gun battle, his partner, Officer Stevenson, engaged gunshots with suspect Carlton Hips, who was shot one time in the leg. Ramon Williams and Carlton Hips have both been arrested and charged with the murder of Officer Wilson attempted murder of officer stevenson
1: robbery and related offenses well i've been around a long time we got some very violent vicious people out here that part doesn't surprise me but when you look at the actions of the officer i think he redefined what a hero is all about he's moving back and forth firing at both suspects uh, that were both firing at him he was taking rounds he was actually being hit uh during the exchange of gunfire but he continued to fight continued to shoot until the fatal wound was, uh, was fired and it brought him down.
6: These officers put their, line on, their life on the line every day for us so that we can have a safe neighborhood so kids can go out and play. For this to happen is such a tragedy.
4: Um, by two men who grew up in the neighborhood that he patrols um, and they kill him. And he acted valiantly, right? And so I remember I was out, like, you know, with my snowblower. You don't know anything about this because you're from – you're in Cali. Um, Snowblower,
5: yeah.
4: (laughs) You've probably read about them or seen them on TV. I've read about
0: snowblowers.
4: Yeah, so I'm out with my snowblower, (laughs) snowblowing my neighbor's sidewalks. My phone died. Um, And when I turned my phone on, I could tell something had happened because now my text messages are blowing up once I plug it it in. And it's from cops it's from dudes from the neighborhood um, who are from North Philly um, who are texting me to say, Hey, can you tell me what's up with the cop? Is he okay? These are dudes who don't have a stellar criminal record who are texting me like they're mm. worried about this cop. Right. Wow. Um, and I remember a female, had, uh female who was very fond of him. He texted yeah. me um, to say, you know, this young woman said, you know, you, I just want you to know, like, he, dude arrested me. Um, and every interaction we had, he was nothing but respectful to me. Um, hmm. And so here was a dude that, like, he arrested her. And she was like, yeah, I was out of pocket, yeah. you know, wow. I was fighting and this and that. But, like, man, like, she was heartbroken that this cop huh. who had arrested her had been killed. Now, if,
0: yeah, because he was one if, of the good
4: guys. Well, he was just a dude from the neighborhood. You know, he was from Philly. He was a Philly yeah. dude who still had deep roots here, who was decent towards her um, because he right. understood the challenges that she faced. And that's why when I say, like, when you start, you know, casting, and I, and I see people on social media who do it, where I'm like, well, what was your interaction with cops? You can't, you know, you live in a white, lily white neighborhood, and you're talking about F the police. Um, yeah. it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Do policing, community policing better. Um, right. And it's not right. going to help if if you're agitating from the safety of your your neighborhood because you don't come through our neighborhood. You don't invest no, in our neighborhood. No, you don't. Yeah, you're not, not
0: vested at all. Yeah. Right.
4: You're not, you're not putting not any any of these people to to work. And the reason that there's crime is because we're hungry. Um, you know, I right. always argue that we are a chocolate city, and people assume that um because we're you know assume that where there are black folks there is crime and the truth is i'm surrounded by um black folks on my street my block is entirely black there is not crime on our street nobody's shooting each other on the street because mm-hmm. we're all employed we all have a right. uh, long work histories we network but you go you know 10 blocks over And the folks in those neighborhoods aren't doing as well. And, you know, one of the reasons I chose to be in this neighborhood is so that we could try to support the kids, the the young folks in the neighborhood more generally. But it's it's hard. It's not as easy as you would think, um, especially when there just isn't a lot of opportunity here. That opportunity fled to the suburbs. So the folks who have the luxury... Of sitting over there and looking out, you know, looking at our neighborhood and yeah. looking at our community. It of course, you could say f the police because you don't have to deal with them, um, and you have no right. idea what they do—good, bad, or otherwise. Um, but right. we have to, we got to, we have to have these conversations to say where is their, oh, you know, where is their common ground? You know, and again, there are some real shitty cops, um, and then there are cops that I've seen drag young black dudes out of their car. Um, we had a case yeah. not long ago where he dragged the the young dude out of the car and the the young man's neck was like hemorrhaging and squirting.
5: Oh my god!
4: And the cop got some in his mouth. Um, and it was yeah. just like drenched and, and he's you know so I'm like oh, oh my god. god like you must be freaked out and this is stuff that yeah, I, I don't know heck? that I would that's stuff I don't know that I would do. I mean I, I just don't know if I have it in me. If it was my kid, yeah, I don't know, but I'm not a cop. But, you know, and then when the kid was pronounced, the cop um, was devastated. And it was, you know, I'm looking at a white cop who probably came from, grew up in northeast Philly. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And I'm not suggesting Mm -hmm. every cop is like this, but here's a white cop who fits the profile of what you would think of being a bad, was going to be a bad cop. And he's, you know, he's devastated because he did his best to save this kid who he didn't know from a can of paint. Um, and I think it had more to do that, with the fact that here's a kid who's probably 18 years old, never really got to start his life, and died despite everything right. that this cop did. Um, again, this isn't me making a promotional uh, you know,
0: no, podcast no, for, but for
4: cops, but just to say you, you, we have to take into consideration the complexities of, of it all. And, then, and, and to not be chicken shit about it and say, well, I'm just going to stand over right. here. And cast stones at the hood or the problems that exist in the hood. Well, if you really are concerned, then, then invest in the hood because what what our problem is is both racial and economic, um, right? And right. we have to address both of those things if we're going to move you know move towards progress.
0: I two hundred percent agree, and you know this is actually why I wanted you to come on the show is for this reason. You are you were taught you're in the trenches, living this on the daily basis. So you see this stuff firsthand and you have these interactions firsthand. And I think a lot of folks, like you say, they they don't live in the inner city. They don't see what goes on and they're sort of pronouncing judgments about stuff that they might not fully understand. And so right. hopefully some folks will be able to listen to this and maybe have a bit of better, better understanding of all that. And I think you're right. The situation between like a Philadelphia and a Ferguson is so different because Ferguson, you had these outside cops that weren't part of the community. They weren't engaging in community policing. And I, I would verifiably say several of them were absolutely racist. Talk a little bit about, you know, you mentioned the economic situations, and I do think that that's a driving force as well behind a lot of these problems. And I don't think we can separate the race and economic issues because they're sort of married and interwoven together. Uh, So what are some solutions we can look at, in your opinion, to start to change that environment?
4: I mean, one of the things that's so frustrating to me is, you know, so to, I mean, I want to tie it into the gun violence issue is the the fact that we spend, you know, the average gunshot patient is going to cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands uh, of dollars Mm -hmm. to treat, right? And then when you multiply Mm -hmm. it by the number of shooting victims in Philadelphia last year, we had more than 1,200 shooting victims. As I said, 80% of those shooting victims are going to survive. Um, yeah. Those those individuals who are shot, um, we know where to find them. We know where they where they live. We can predict where they're going to be shot. We know which schools that they attended. Um, we know how old they are, and we know that they um, are probably not doing probably didn't do well in school, um, and they are probably not working. Nor have they can they work because we've hit them with. Um, you know adult criminal records from the time they were sixteen, we adjudicate yeah. them as adults, and from the time yeah. I mean, we've basically um, cemented their their Teachers, fortunes
0: yeah,
4: yeah. Mm-hmm. and so what we have to do, and one of the things that's you know I credit Philly with doing is there 's a movement um to try to um, redirect them away from the – young people away from the criminal justice system. Um, And Mm -hmm. to go – so one of the Mm -hmm. people who's leading that charge is the former deputy commissioner who is an African-American who grew up here in Philly who has black kids in this city. He left the police department to join the private sector to join essentially the nonprofit world to say, I want to spend my energy not arresting kids but trying to steer them away from the criminal justice system. And Mm -hmm. he's working Mm -hmm. using his leverage and his experience to work with law enforcement to say, what if we didn't lock up that kid? What if we just gave him a second chance? And what if we connected right. him to people instead of hanging an adult charge on him so that he'll we're guaranteeing mm-hmm. that he'll never work, guaranteeing that he'll have to go to the street to make that money because the street doesn't care what your criminal record is. In fact, in some cases, it'll right. serve you better. It looks better on your resume That's if you right. have a, a criminal record. The streets are ready for you. Um, and so, yeah. you know, to answer that question, we got to quit. Um, We've got to quit. Arresting these um, nonviolent drug offenders and hitting them oh, yeah, with I adult charges—we've got to invest in putting them to work. So the amount of money that we spend on the back end, the amount of money that we spend to, um, you know, treat them for gunshot injuries, to incarcerate them, is absurd. If we invested that. Mm-hmm. Um, and spent that money to provide them job training, to invest in their educations, to um, provide, um, you know, um, mentoring or anything, um, to set up jobs in the neighborhoods that basically just said, listen, you know, and and so, for example, in in L.A., um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Father Greg Boyle and Homeboy Industries. In um, yeah, the yeah, like they basically created a business just to keep those dudes off the street. Um, yeah. And you know, if we did something like that, um, but had business invest in these neighborhoods, because what you got to realize right. is that um, our violence in Philly is not our secret. You know America knows that Philly's a violent city. Um, if Philly ever expects to be a world-class city to compete with other world-class cities, we've got to address this violence problem.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. we've
4: got to be willing to put those young folks to work because the truth is um, out of all those gunshot victims, most of the people that I deal with um, who are young, black, and male, they don't, they're not working right now. Many of them have not finished right. high school. And that's not because they didn't right. want to. It's simply because, Um, we messed them up from such an early age and made it virtually impossible for them to get work and to become productive citizens that they had to do what they had to do. And I'm not excused. I meet people who are so anti-socialist and um, some some very bad people. Um, But for the most part, the majority of the people that I meet um Who have been shot, regardless of how they might want to, people might want to portray them, they're very decent people who come from very decent people who are doing the best they can with what they got. We right. just have to give them right. more
0: oh i I concur completely uh, so one of actually speaking of that one of the things that you do is you you have a program where you go into the um inner city areas and talk to the kids about what gun violence is what what gunshot wounds look like and and try to steer them away from that sort of thing Uh, tell us a little bit about that
4: Yeah, so um, dr. Amy Goldberg who's the chair of surgery at Temple University Hospital um, back when she and I met she was the chief trauma surgeon um, and Mm she's been up at Temple for you know I want to say approaching 20 years Um, and so she had always had this idea that she would prefer to not meet young black men. And it wasn't just necessarily about being young black men, but just saying she was meeting so many young gun victims um, who yeah. were coming in shot. And they would look up at her and just be like, oh, my God, I'm not going to die, am I? Um, and, and to realize, yeah. like, they didn't know anything about what they were going through, despite the fact that there was so much gun violence, that there, there was this mm-hmm. knowledge gap that existed. Um, So what she wanted to do was to create a program that helped close that knowledge gap about what it meant to be shot, because there was so much disinformation and misinformation um, that these Mm -hmm. young folks were receiving. And so to try to set the record straight. So back in 2006, we began running this program called Cradle to Grave. Um, And every year we bring in more than a thousand kids. To teach them mm-hmm. um, about what bullets do to bodies, um, so we use uh, we use narratives. So we tell the story of a young, an actual gunshot victim from the neighborhood, um, who was shot 14 times, um, mm. 24 hours a- 24 hours after he predicted his own death, over just really dumb kind of neighborhood politics, um, and. Because Mm -hmm. his grandmother wanted something good to come out of his death, she allowed us to use his medical record to tell his story. She wanted this. So we've been doing this for um, going on 12 years now, more than 12 years now. And um, we've had more than 12,000 kids come through the program. Um, We work with sometimes young um, first-time gun offenders, a lot Mm -hmm. of kids that are um, going through the system because of violent crime um and sometimes just high schools um from the community the the overall community and we walk them through the final moments of this young man's life and what um, Mm. doctors did in an effort to save him in the trauma bay because when i talk to kids and i ask them like well what is it you know how many of you know somebody who's been shot you know we'll start there almost all the kids raise their hand they all know somebody who's been shot because in the life of your average ninth grader, um, 24,000 people have been shot in Philadelphia. So many of them know somebody who's been shot. And then I asked them, well, what do doctors use to take bullets out of patients? And they always say tweezers um, because that's something mm. you see in movies. And when I ask them, well, how do doctors wake up hearts? And they start putting their, rubbing their hands together, like, um, you know, making <laughs> gestures like they're going to use defibrillators, yeah. right? Um, and they okay. always say, well, they, they don't know the term defibrillator, but they'll say, you know, right, right, right. The, those, those shock johns, right? Because in Philly, everything is a john. So they'll say those shock johns. Yes. <laughs> um, and I explained that out of the 6,000 patients that have been treated in my time at Temple, um, I can't think of many or any that receive the defibrillators as they're thinking of them. Um, and then I, mm-hmm. we go on and I or um, one of our, Um, trauma attendings or residents will walk them through the medical record of this young man and we'll take a kid from the group um, lie him on the stretcher in the trauma bay and just talk Mm. through kind of you know this is what this instrument does this is where it goes this is what the doctor does Um, oh you know ultimately the way doctors start hearts um, with gunshot victims is through um, open cardiac massage Right.
5: So wow, yeah. the
4: process of essentially reaching into a young person's chest and taking that young person's heart in their hands and massaging it and trying to stimulate mm-hmm. it and send the blood that's in the heart up to the brain. Um, and so imagine, right. you know, these are this is not something you're ever going to see on television, but it's a procedure that's done dozens of times at the hospital each year. Um, right. And so while for many people that seems drastic. Um, it's not, it's something that happens all the time at the hospital. Um, and so for the kids who are most likely in harm's way, um, I think we have a responsibility to say, um, this is what happens when you get shot and to the potential Mm -hmm. perpetrator, which is the most important person to get the message. This is what you're doing when you pull the trigger. There's no soundtrack. There's no, this isn't like the movies. Um, that person right. you're going to shoot is going to survive 80% of the time. And like the case of the young man I have right now, there's a young man I'm dealing with, um, who was shot and he's now going to be paralyzed, assuming he survives from the neck down over what, like what, what is wow. it that he could have done that made you feel that in the prime of his life, he deserved to be paralyzed from the neck down for the remainder of the right. days. And so what we're trying to do is unpack the medical realities of gun violence to kind mm-hmm. of dispel a lot of the misconceptions and the mythology that exists um, that we seem to be content with as a society with having media portray this for whatever reason
5: yeah. and to dispel yeah. some of
4: that, you know. And so that's, that's really what we would do. And, and to those people who suggest that this is um, heretical – um, this idea of showing kids the truth, I would argue that if, if you know, heart disease was the number one cause of death, um, you would not have a problem with me telling kids about what their hearts would look like, right. if they were surrounded by <laughs> fat, or encouraging them to eat healthier. And we know from right. the evidence that we have when it comes to smoking, that by showing kids um, the realities of smoking, and if you yeah. recall, in the last several years. You've seen commercials where you had a, a woman who smoked, who had a tracheotomy, who um,
0: right, right
4: had a wig, and she takes everything off and reveals the takes her teeth out, and you, re, you begin to understand like this is the these are the consequences of smoking. So um, that's yeah. essentially what we've done with shooting, and what you found with the smoking campaign is it led to you know hundreds of thousands of people attempting. To stop smoking, and we're simply just trying to tell the truth about what gun violence is from our perspective.
0: So, what kind of impact um, has this had in your community? Have you noticed that it's um, curtailed some of the violence, or or no?
4: So, for so for, since two thousand and six, when we uh, you know really began running this program, um, we started seeing this this significant drop in shootings right um and as much as i would love to tell you that it was because of our cradle to grave program um we also saw that that those declines in shootings were happening across the country so as much as i'd like to pat ourselves on the back um (laughs) it was happening everywhere the good news is it wasn't like we were doing the program and the shootings were increasing The shootings were going down, we were doing the program, but a lot of people were doing a lot of programs. So what we did is we evaluated our program against itself, um, and we did a study where we looked at changes in attitudes with our kids. Um, And it was a small sample of kids, um, and it was a pilot study. And what we found is that the kids who went through the program, um, compared to their attitudes um, before they came through the program, had had a marked um, improvement in their attitudes towards guns and violence. Um, And this change, this improvement in attitudes, the fact that they saw guns as a less reasonable response to being disrespected, we found that um, to be uh, strongest among the kids who came from the most violent neighborhoods, which was very encouraging. And so one Mm. of the things that we're doing now is we're looking to expand on that study. Um, because we think that it provides valuable insight we think um, that what we have always thought is by painting violence gun violence in particular in a more realistic light yeah helps kids make more informed decisions because if you think that you pull the trigger and this person like you see in video games or in movies just dies instantly that's not a big deal because there really isn't much suffering there, right? He just ceases to mm. exist. Um, but when you explain that 80% of the time when you pull the trigger, there are going to be these really extreme measures that are going to have to be taken to try to save that patient. And even when we yeah. save the patient, you know, we being the hospital, I'm not a surgeon, but when the hospital saves that patient, he or she is going to live spend a lifetime with devastating injuries, and you have to ask right. yourself, was it worth it? Am I that mad? You know, was I? You know, the fact that this person stepped on my shoes doesn't really justify me shooting this person. <laughs>
0: right, yeah. Because some of the reasons, I guess, at that age. And what is the average age of these kids? Um, they're younger, like fifteen, sixteen.
4: So, so right now, things are shifting a little bit. But okay. the the greatest kind of concentration. Um, of shooting victims is between 15 and 24, yeah. you know, young, young 20s. Yeah, is, but um, things in the recent years have begun to shift. We're starting to see um, older people beginning to be shot by younger people. Um, and mm. one of the things that, you know, one of the things that we were hearing from shooting victims is that their perpetrators are young. And then when you started kind of unpacking like the interactions that they were having, it was really rooted in, Um, A lot of times the the shooting victim was somebody who had been incarcerated for a long period of time, came home and assumed that his reputation would still be out there. And so when he would get out to Mm. the
5: street,
4: he would have these conversations and felt disrespect and would say something to the young dude. And what these people didn't understand is that while they were gone, the game had changed. And people, you know, young people in particular were shooting first and asking questions later like oh who was who that old head that I just shot oh okay well I didn't know about his reputation too bad <laughs> right and had really mm. little regard for that dude's reputation that existed before this kid even lived so yes young people are still overwhelmingly overwhelmingly being the ones being shot but they're also beginning to shoot people who are older than they are it's kind of this form of social capital Um, and so, so what it says is like, you know, I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out, but neither do you. Um, and what I have is my reputation. And if you do something to disrespect me, if I take a hit to my reputation, then what it does is it signals to other people that I, I can be tested. So I can't let this small infraction slide because then it's just an invitation to to future trouble and i have no guarantee how big that future trouble may be so what i'll do is i'm going to um get my pound of flesh or i'm going to send a message that i'm not one to be trifled with and so Mm -hmm. that individual um who feels that he's been slighted will then um use violence oftentimes to remedy that situation and what it does is one um, it sends a message to you don't mess with me um, and and you know James Gilligan who is a pretty smart guy when it comes to violence and has written a number of books about violence has argued that at the root of all acts of violence is the sense of shame and so mm-hmm. I think there are a couple things happening one is because I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out and I'm aware of this um, you know, I feel like you're doing this because you you don't feel I'm about anything. You don't respect me, and that hurts. Right. But also, it has real symbolic value. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to exact my revenge. And it's going to make me feel better. I'm going to put my shame on you. Um, I'm going to get it off of me. And I'm also, the the other side, the other added benefit is that I'm going to send a message to anybody else who might be thinking about testing me. Um, and so right, it's, okay. it's it's more complicated than just, you know, poor people are bad people or black people are bad people. Um, A lot of it has to do with the environments in which they find themselves. They didn't write these Mm -hmm. rules. They were born into these environments, and they didn't create these environments. You know, white flight, redlining, and all these other things, you know, all these other forms of segregation created this environment. So they're just playing by the rules that they inherited. Um, And so um, I get it, you know, I I absolutely get it. But I also walk through these neighborhoods um, and I also work with these neighborhoods and I'm not somebody that, um, you know, is going to hurt you because you stepped on my foot. The reason I'm not going to is because if you stepped on my foot, I can, I have the luxury of saying that was just a human error and I'm going to write this off. And I know you didn't mean to harm me. I'm going to go home to my house and with my, in my neighborhood, um, and I'm going to go back to my job, and I know that if I do something stupid, I'm going to lose all of that. But if you right. don't have anything to lose,
0: thing to lose, yeah,
4: then of course you're not going to, you know, you're not going to think through all of that stuff. Um, but mm-hmm. I also don't find myself in these neighborhoods that you would, that, not you, but folks would consider dangerous. I don't feel threatened in those neighborhoods because I, I think many of the folks in those neighborhoods um, are most, um, if you know, the vast majority of them are very good people um, who want very good things. Um, and a lot mm-hmm. of times I'm in those neighborhoods. It's because I'm trying to do something that's positive and they are, they're happy to be right. there and they're doing, they're doing positive things too. Um, but there are um, elements and, and unfortunately it's young men um, who, um, who we've targeted as, as, you know, being dangerous and um not being worthy and, um, you know, you see what happens to, in particular to young black boys in school who were are punished more harshly um, than their counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You send those messages to them at a very early age. And so it's really Absolutely. no wonder that by the time that they're teenagers trying to figure out what it means to be a man, that a lot of it is rooted in like, well, what is my persona? Am I somebody who's tough? Am I somebody who's hard? Um, I'm not going to let you disrespect me. I'm not even sure how I get from here, how I get out of this nightmare. Um, but i 'm mm-hmm. the last thing i 'm going to do is let you disrespect me, and when you have enough of uh, young men in that circumstance it's it 's a recipe for disaster and that 's why I go back to what you asked earlier, which is how do we you know what can we do? Well, we have to make we, you know talk is cheap we can tell them that it 's important that they don 't harm one another, and that um right. if they if they do dumb things now it 's going to affect their future you know soon will affect their future instead of doing that, you you know, the proof is in the pudding. Talk is cheap. You have to be able to say, look, man, here's how, this is what we're going to do. You know, this is how we're going to get you straight. We're going to put you on a job here and and we're going to make it possible for you to take money home. And and while you're doing that, I'm going to mentor you because um, you are angry because society has dealt you a bad hand. Let's let's work on Mm -hmm. it. Let's talk about these feelings because you're not alone in these feelings. Those are, legitimate right. feelings but um, we can't self-sabotage and so you know these are the kinds of things that we have to be willing to do when it comes to young men in these neighborhoods and I say young men it's, it's young women as well but when it comes to violence that violence is perpetrated by and against uh, young men uh, in particular
0: yeah no you know that makes perfect sense to me they don't have equality of opportunity the economic disparities and it's gotten worse I mean the income inequality in the country is horrible Right. And I feel, yeah, and I feel there's a really strong correlation, and you're sort of confirming that for me, between um, economic uh, economic justice and, and gun violence.
4: Right. So, the you know, the gun violence thing exacerbates the existing condition, right? And one of the yeah. things I do when I do Cradle to Grave is I demonstrate, you know, I walk kids' kind of scenarios, and I show a map of what the shootings look like. And you can see that, like, yeah – this thing is viral, you know. Gun violence, in particular, yeah. unlike most forms of violence, because again, it requires little investment physically, right? So to shoot somebody, mm-hmm. you can do that um, from a distance. Um, you know, you don't have to like with stabbing; you don't have to get up close and personal. You can shoot them at the distance. Mm. But again, yeah. we're we're better at saving lives than they are at taking lives. Um, so that means that your the person you shot and intended to kill, I assume. Is going to come home 80% of the time mm-hmm. when they come home they're going, to look for reta- they're going to be looking to retaliate yeah. right um, and then
5: yeah.
4: and then when they retaliate they're not going to use their hands because you shot them they're going to use a gun and they're going to retaliate in kind um, yeah. and that's why the gun Um, Once you introduce a gun into this exchange, into this interaction, um, it it turns this this conflict in a direction from which it can't come back, um, which is why the gun is so problematic. Plus, um, the devastation, the cost um, of handgun violence is tremendous. Um, you know society the, the state in Pennsylvania is going to pick up most of the tab, the initial tabs for gun violence um, because a lot of the gun victims are not insured, so the state is uh-huh. for whatever reason taxpayers seem to be happy to pay that bill, which is ridiculous um, now
0: yeah, as opposed to doing something to deal with the economic
4: circumstances on the fr- on the front, front side probably. Of it, right?
0: <laughs> Yeah, it would probably be uh, less money in the in the long term per capita. Well, far, you would it's imagine. far
4: less money. But to go back to you know, the, the individual, the individual is going to bear the brunt of the financial cost because one, he um in many cases and is no longer gonna be able to do the kind of work that he's um you right. know, he's prepared to do, right? Um so mm-hmm you know, because of the the damage being so devastating, it limits the kind of physical labor that he's going to be able to do. And so now yeah. you put him in this, he's caught in this trap, right? He can't, you know, if he's got a high school education, there's only so much he's going to do. A lot of it might be physical in nature, but he can't do it. He's not equipped to do it. So what's he going to do? He's going to, hit to the, head to the mm-hmm. corner in some cases. And then yeah. he's going to be arrested or shot. And it's, it's a trap, you know, it, it absolutely it's is trapped. a trap. It's way cheaper um, it's, it's way cheaper to invest in keeping that kid away from the corner in the first place, keeping um, him away right. from the conflict in in the first place. And again, when you introduce the gun into that equation, um, it, it just spins it into a, a, a direction that's You're very right. hard to control.
0: Okay. Thanks, you know, thanks for sitting down and talking to me. This is very eye-opening. Actually, yeah. I learned more. See, every time I talk to you, I learn stuff.
4: Oh <laughs> uh, Well, thank you, and I appreciate you. You know, I do appreciate you taking the time to shine a light on this issue. I mean, everybody says that. It sounds like a, a pat comment. Um, but the, the truth is um, it's so easy to take our eye off the ball. And, and so often, yeah. you know, when mass shootings happen, that we start assuming that that's where it really is. But, you know, as I right. always say, you know, you could take every victim from every mass school shooting since Columbine add them together and multiply it by two and you wouldn't reach the number of shooting victims we had in philadelphia just last year um and that's why it's important to to continue talking about the impact that this is having on disadvantaged communities
0: yeah no and you're and see you're exactly right on that we talk about the mass shootings uh because it's what the media reports the media doesn't report the day-to-day gun violence that's going on in in this in this country which is you're right it's massively larger amount of folks I want to do something about the mass shootings but I certainly don't want to ignore the the gun violence that hap- that's happening on the day-to-day in our poor neighborhoods you know I mean you can't call yourself a progressive that cares about these issues and not address the
4: whole entire picture I guess is what I'm right. trying to say Doing that, and thank you for taking the time to, to talk to me
0: yeah so what is um tell everybody what your twitter handle is if they want to start following you and and learn about this stuff
4: uh, my Twitter handle is the Scott Charles, um, and uh, yeah, and follow me. That's uh, I'm always wow. talking about this stuff.
0: You are no, I love your feed. I, I, I <laughs>